morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howard States. I'm Doug Howard. Today we're going to be talking about the calculated risk in reopening schools and the light thoughts on heavy drinking. And with me today is Dr. Christian Smart. How are you today, Christian? Oh, doing well. How are you, Doug? Good, thanks. Very good. Um, been a while since we had a chance to chat, and I'm uh, excited to talk to you again. Lots of things are happening in the world. You've had your podcast. Mine is coming up too, by the way. I forgot to mention. I forgot to tell you about that. Um, oh yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. Yes, a week from two weeks from today on Wednesday morning. I'm going to be having a, a speech on the ICEA.org. That's I-C-A-A-I-C, I'm sorry, I-C-E-A-A.org website entitled A Three Market Ten-Dimensional Trade, in which I look at three markets at the same time and perform trades between them. The interest to you and the crowd is that this actually is uh, – real-world plotting in 10 dimensions that we've been doing for forever, but now we actually have a way to, to show you what, how, that, how that works and how you can use it to your benefit. So please try and to join can sign up for free. This is free to the public, free. I think. Yeah, it's free to the public. It's at 12 noon Eastern Daylight Time on the 29th of July. That's two weeks from today. And I hope you can join me there. I, I listened to Christian's podcast. That was two weeks ago, wasn't it, Christian? Pretty much, yeah, about two, about two, three weeks ago. I think it was June 23rd, my QED webinar, which is, you can still, um, that's a paid uh, event, but you can still, um, it's been recorded, so you can pay and watch the recording, $25 if, if you're a member, 50 if you're a non-member, and they've also have a professional development bundle if you're someone who would like to be an ICEA member, but you cannot get your company to reimburse you for your membership dues, you can, uh, but your company is willing or your organization is willing to pay for your training, you can get this deal, which is $100 for uh, the, the training webinar. And then as a free bonus, you get one year of ICEA membership. Oh, that's great. Because yep. it usually costs much more than that, right? Well, I see a membership, but one year membership is around a hundred dollars, I think, ninety-five or a hundred dollars a year. So, um, you can also basically f for the price of membership, you get the webinar for free as well. So, oh, great! You think of it one way or the other. Excellent, excellent. Well, you've been tracking, and I have too, um, the COVID nineteen crisis, and and um, for those of you who get a chance to read Christian's. Uh, weblog, uh, you you might have caught caught his piece on the de facto experiment that was run in a hair salon just a few weeks ago. Christian, maybe you could explain that to people. What happened in this particular hair salon that amounted to a basically a you know a medical experiment with mathematical implications coming out of it. Yes, so it's a, a very small-scale experiment. Uh, it was a small salon. I guess there were eight employees total. Everyone in the shop had to wear masks. All the customers had to wear masks. And it turned out that two of the hairdressers were 
uh, later tested positive for COVID, and they were known to have each serviced about 70 people during that time that they were, they were known to have, they were, they were positive during that time, and they, um, they, were, and they, were, and they were working during that time. Uh, none of their clients um, caught the virus, and none of their coworkers did either. Initially, uh, this took place a couple of months ago. Initially, only um, around 40 people got tested. They all tested negative. And then since then, they've done some contact tracing and people have followed up. And um, they've either not had it at all or they've never had any symptoms. So, um, so it, it seems like it's a very positive, very strong statistical signal that these folks uh, wearing masks works at preventing the spread of the virus. There's that, if, if you think about 146, or even if you reduce it to just the 40 that tested negative that we know for certain did not have it, there's somewhere between a, at least a 94% or higher chance that using masks is effective. Otherwise, there's basically no way that they could be you know, expose themselves, that many people, and not pass on the virus. So. That's very strong statistical signal. That's a, a very micro scale type of thing that um, has, uh, you know, lessons for us throughout society. So, um, and I just read the, an article today that if uh, by the CDC says, if everyone wore masks in America, we could get the virus under control within a month or two, which is, uh, which is pretty critical, especially with, um, you know, the fall season coming along. Yeah, and, and maybe one way for our listeners to think about this, if they want to do a little bit of math in their head, is that um, take something like a coin flip. Now, say you, you, you want to get a tail out of the coin flip, and, and you're going to vote tail every time. So the first time you do it, it's a 50-50 proposition, and, you know, the thing comes up, heads or tails, you know, you, you might say, okay, it came up heads. So it's, it's still 50-50 for doing the next coin toss. It might come up heads again. And the next one, and so on. But as you take those things collectively, the chance of it happening three times in a row that it comes up heads when you're pulling for tails is 50% 0.5 raised to the three power, which means it's one chance in eight. So what Christian is getting at here is the he's basically backed into the number at which nobody would have gotten sick. So if you take 40, if you take, um, see, if you take 0.94 and you raise it to the 45th power, that still gets you a number less than one. Isn't that correct, Christian? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if you, if, if the, if the coin is, you think of the world, like a bias coins, heavily biased towards heads, which you think that's may that's mask wearing. And so, uh, if, if that the chance you flip the coin, it comes up heads is 94%. Basically, you get a, a whole series of, you know, 140 heads. So 0.94 raised to 140 is a really small number, well less than one. So even if it's, but even if it was less than, you know, people point out, well, not everyone got tested, but even if it's 40 people, um, 0.94 raised to the 40 is 8%. So there's only, if, if it were only 94% effective, there's only an 8% chance that, that none of those 40 people would have tested negative later for the, for COVID. So, yeah. um, 
So, you know, so that means that it's probably the, the probability is likely higher, right? There's only an 8% chance that it's 0.94 or below. Right. right. So it's a pretty strong chance that, that the probability that masks work is extremely high. Yeah. And there, that, the reason we're bringing this up is that right now here in our state, now again, to remind our listeners, Christian lives in Tennessee and, and uh, I live in California and I'm living in Los Angeles County, which is north of Orange County. And so in Orange County, the there's a debate between the Board of Education that suggested that all those kids go back to school without any precautions at all. But now the individual districts are balking at that and they're saying, no, we, we don't want to we don't want to proceed that way. We think that's a recipe for disaster. So um I guess another question that comes in there is the apparently the younger the student, the less the chance would be for somebody to get sick, but then you're reintroducing a whole bunch of adults to teach the kids and to keep the kids safe. And so the, the question then becomes, you know, how much exposure do you have? Now, if we run the, if we take something like the nail salon example, which is probably a fairly confined, confined space with a bunch of, you know, with at least I think you said eight people in the in the room at all times, Christian, plus however many customers you had, and they didn't get sick. That kind of gives you a baseline idea how much volume they had with that that they had to work with. And you could maybe try to translate that to a school environment, but then that starts to get pretty complicated in trying to apply that. I mean, just as I say that, I'm thinking, how would you go about applying that in in, in schools? Yeah, it's a little little bit more difficult. Um you know, in in uh it's hard enough to get adults to wear masks. Are you going to be able to get children to wear masks? You know, they're right. going to um, have the discipline to keep them on. And that's even with the salon workers, they're only exposing them. You know, they're only being exposed to it for, you know, 30 minutes or an hour at a time, depending on what they're getting done with their hair. Um, but, um, you know, you and I don't have a lot of hair, so it's probably pretty easy for us to be short. <laughs> A uh, couple of minutes, just a couple of passes over the clippers. And, but for these ladies, you know, get colors or whatever, it's, you know, it can take sure. an hour or more. So, but you're talking about still, you're talking about an hour, maybe at most two hours exposure um, versus at school, you're, you're in a, a large group, seven hours a day. You know, the CDC's also said some things like, you know, that there's some, uh, some of these um, um, schools, they have, have pretty bad, um, don't have good filters in their in their systems and that kind of thing. So, so there's you know a lot a lot of a lot of things that need to be done. They have to spend uh, a lot of money, um, which you know when it comes to bailing out. Unfortunately, when it comes out to bailing out businesses, the government's all for it. But when it comes to spending money on education, the government uh, balks quite a bit. Unfortunately, there's been some other countries that have reopened their schools. Um, you know, Sweden never closed their schools. Right. And they've had, so they're kind of the, the one extreme, you know, they're, they've had outbreaks in the schools. Um, Norway, which reopened their schools in April, they, they uh, only allowed younger students because, you know, the, the younger, apparently the younger you are, the less likely you are to get sick, the less likely you are to contract it. Mm-hmm. Um, they reduced the class size to most 15 kids. They practiced physical dis- uh, distancing and they increased hand washing. And they didn't, no masks are involved here. But there was no increase in in, in COVID nineteen in Norway. Right, so right. Um, is, Israel reopened their schools in May, and that's been linked to a big outbreak in Israel. Israel was actually crushing the curve, and then now now it's not going so well. 
they did require everyone over at age seven to wear a face mask and they did implement contract tracing. So uh, that's, that's not, uh, that's not that great. Germany, um, they only allowed the older students to come. They alternated shifts. They required masks. They reduced the class size to at most 10 uh, students mm -hmm. and they did viral and antibody testing. There was an increase among the kids, but there was no increase in COVID among the staff. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and then Denmark, which reopened their schools and they, so all these schools reopened, um, except for, you know, Sweden never closed, but all these schools opened, reopened between late April, mid to late April and early May. So we've had some time to kind of see the impact because it takes a while. Uh, in Denmark, which reopened in mid April, they only allowed the younger students. They reduced the class size to 12. They practiced physical distancing and they increased hand washing and the net increase has been none. No, no net increase on COVID. So uh, it looks like one of the things that, I mean, it's a small data set, but one of the things that looks like these things have in common is uh, hand washing, you know, sanit sanitizing and small class sizes. And, and younger students seems to help as well. So, you know, there's a variety of different proposals out there, you know, like, uh, like here in, in Tennessee, there's no mask requirement, unfortunately, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the ne county next to us is where Nashville is. They're going completely online, but there's some debate about here. I think here they're trying to get kids to go back in person, uh, but they're, they're going to allow a virtual distance kind of thing um, as well, a virtual option. But uh, there's also some debate over whether they should allow all the kids to go back to school or only up to around, you know, second grade, you know, maybe sure. experiment, maybe, maybe, maybe just let the younger kids start and then let the older kids start you know, part of the problem is, is it's also, if, you know, parents working from home and they have small kids at home, it makes it very difficult. Um, I do know that, um, that this has just happened. My son is in daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, he's in preschool and he goes there all day. Uh, I work from home. My wife, wife is an attorney, kind of works for herself, works from home. Um, and she's been working part time lately. But um, so if, so if our son, you know, he had to come home full time and it would have to really uh, juggle, you know, while we both work. Oh, sure. Right. Um, you know, try to either work before he, you know, try to work early before he gets up and work while he takes his nap or, you know, or, you know, juggle things around. But, and, um, that's a little bit of a, something to debate we have right now, because we just learned today around about a couple hours ago that one of the teachers at his school uh, tested positive. Oh, geez. So it's not his teacher. It's not his class. Um, one of the things that's been surprising me is even though masks are not required here, which that should change. Um, I was, I'm one of the few parents who wears a mask when I drop miles off or pick him up and none of the staff were wearing masks. Uh, yeah. That's going to change. We're still a little concerned. It's not his class. Uh, there are going to do some sort of deep cleaning of the class that room that was affected, but we don't know who else has potentially been affected or infected or been exposed to it. Um, you know, one of the, it seems to be spread through respiratory droplets, which is why masks help so much. Right. And so it could be spread through the ventilation system so that, you know, it's summertime, the air conditioning's going strong all day. And it could have, you know, it could have exposed every person in the building to it. Now, the, the good thing is that the, this person um, has been completely asymptomatic. Oh, that's good. So they may not have a very large uh, viral, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I, I read a lot about it, I guess. But um, so they may, maybe they didn't 
you know, you can speculate they didn't have a, a large viral load. They have been taking employees' temperatures every morning and students' temperatures every morning. And if and, and so far, no one has run a temperature. And this, this employee didn't either. The only reason they got tested was they live in an apartment. Someone in their apartment building tested positive. Oh, sure, so they right. went, got tested, and they turns out they, they have uh, COVID. But they've never run a fever. So, um, so we, you know, often I have to make some decisions about what do we do with our son and do we bring him home? And it's just, it's not going to be an easy uh, easy fall for a lot of people. And we have to make that decision now about, you know, do we, do we bring him home for a couple of weeks and see how things go? If there's more outbreaks, then, you know, of course, we'll have to come home or, um, you know, what what do we do? So there's some decisions we have to make, affecting, affecting a lot of people. I know that... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I know, I know more, I hear, I hear about more and more people either that I know or people that, yeah, you know, that, that I know, then, then they know someone that has personally been affected by it. So, right. um, so yes, yeah, getting more and more widespread. Well, you know, and there's the, the problem as it stood before us as, as recently as a few weeks ago, it seemed to be, did you get it? Did you not get it? If you got it, were you, sick enough that you had to stay home from work or did you have to go to the hospital? And if you went to the hospital, were you going to die from it? But what they're discovering now, disturbingly, is that some people recover from it, but then they're starting to get some pretty severe and apparently, uh, of course, the, the, the outbreak hasn't been going that long, but apparently lasting effects from the disease, uh, not the least of which is uh, people are reporting brain fog or muscle fatigue. Right. Loss of taste. Um, some of those symptoms have been hanging on past the time that they demonstrate things like a high fever. And um, which is leading some, you know, biologists and epidemiologists to believe that this thing really was a, an engineered virus that may have inadvertently escaped a certain certain lab and uh, got into the wild, as it were. Mm-hmm just that's a depressing thought but that's kind of what we're up against you know yeah it's pretty scary and i just uh, a friend of mine sent me a national geographic article today that um, referenced a study that's been posted online it has not been peer-reviewed yet but it's by some epidemiologists at columbia and they estimated the what is the true infection mortality rate you know other people that are infected how many people die mm-hmm because um, there's so many people that are out there that we don't know if they if they have or not. We don't know the true number of people that are uh, out there running around infected. And they, they estimated it was around 1.5% um, total. And for people over age 75, it's like 14%. Wow. Um, yeah, so if you scale that up to the U.S. as a whole, if you think if every single person you know got it, you know, that's, that's 5 million people. So that's right. a lot of, a lot of deaths. Um, if, if there is some sort of herd immunity, which there's some debate over that because they're finding that even people that get it, the antibodies may not last that long. Um, there, and, and it could be that there are some people that, that there's also some speculation about, and they've seen this in some people that, uh, if they're exposed to the virus, they get a T cell reaction, which means there's, even though they've never been exposed to COVID before, they have some level of immunity mm. and they speculate it's, um, 
it's because of uh, this is a you know this this COVID is a coronavirus like a, col- a common cold, right? And there's some sort of cross immunity. People that have had certain types of colds in the last few years that they're somewhat they have they have some built-in immunity. You know, and that's one thing that's been speculated about small kids. What what do small kids do, especially in daycares? Right. They get a lot of colds, sure. and so you know a lot of these kids may have some built-in immunity. I don't know, but um, but so if so, you know, even if it's but even if you could achieve a, what they call a herd immunity, which is the threshold for that, I've seen numbers like sixty to seventy percent. So even if you assume sixty percent herd immunity, you're still talking about three million deaths. So wow, um, it's pretty pretty scary. And um, I was uh, uh, Nassim Taleb who wrote the Black Swan, and he has a frequent collaborator, uh, Pasquale Cirillo who's at Delft University in the Netherlands, they recently published a paper in May on looking at um, the tail risk, you know, what are the extreme risks from contagious diseases? And so they did some research on 71 historical epidemics Uh going all the way back to the plague of Athens. A lot of these are outbreaks for the plague. The the great thing about, about antibiotics is the plague is a bacterial infection. So, um, kind of have that under knock on wood under control. Uh, it's the viruses we have to worry about now, but if they, they looked at all these things. Uh, they even looked at um, HIV and out cholera outbreaks and various things and looked at the, you know, the, 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 the number of deaths. If you scale it up to the, the current population in the world, there've been a couple of these outbreaks of the, of, and these were plague outbreaks that would have killed the equivalent of over 2 billion people today. Oh my God. So that's kind of on the high end. You think, wow, I mean, two billion, you know, like a third of the population. The plague of Justinian in the Roman Empire in the 500 AD timeframe, and then the, the Black Death in the 1300s, both wiped out about a third of the known the population, about a third of the population in the known world at that time. So, so it's pretty, pretty big. And um, they, they do some analysis on um, it's another conditional probability sort of thing. So if you, we're not just going into this cold. We we know that basically the current official count is 577,000 people have died from this. So right. if if you conditioned on that, what is the likelihood? What is what would you expect the total outbreak to be? You know, and if you look at this the total history of 71 epidemics. You know, 577,000 deaths is right in basically the middle. It's near the median, near the 50% mm-hmm. point. About half have had less than that, and about half have had more. Um, so what, what you know, given that we're at that halfway point, what would you, you know, not taking anything else to account, the, the possibility that there could be a vaccine, not taking any of that stuff into account, just real simple, just looking at the data, statistical analysis, and some modeling. And based on some techniques that they've, you know, that they've uh, developed, um, that come from a branch of statistics called extreme value theory, which is designed for looking at ext- you know, extremes and extreme variation. Um, you know, I, I did some calculations that would suggest um, about a hundred million deaths potentially. Potentially, so that's not million deaths. Yeah, world, worldwide. That's worldwide. No. So, in in the U.S., uh, you know, the U.S. has had about a quarter of the deaths. So, right. Uh, so it's actually about 120 million, I think, um, 
you know, um, and this is just based on the, the data. This is uh, this is not really a forecast. It's more like what could possibly happen, you know. So that's like 120 million people. Um, and if, you, if a quarter of the deaths are in the U.S., that continues to scale up like that. That would be 30 million deaths in the U.S. And uh, it's a really high number. Yeah, so that's kind of depressing. But, I mean, the good news is that they are making a lot of progress on vaccines. Um, hopefully we'll have a vaccine before too long. And, you know, and people wearing, you know, masks. I mean, even the state, Tennessee has not issued a mask mandate, but even states like Alabama, Alabama issued one today. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see that they did that. Um, you know, and, you know, one, one of the issues with the mortality rate is not just people that get the disease. It's also the fact that sometimes in certain locations, the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed. Right. And they're not able to provide critical care people need. And so people die at a higher rate just because of that. Um, I just read yesterday at my hometown in Alabama, I was born at the, what was then the Holy Name of Jesus Hospital in Gadsden, Alabama. It's now um, Clearview Regional Medical Center. Um, but they're, they're out of, uh, they've, they've reached mass capacity on in their critical care unit because of COVID-19 patients. Wow. So, um, so it's pretty, pretty scary. I, I, um, so, so that's another, you know, factors is, is these, you know, um, you know, the, the healthcare system getting overwhelmed. And, um, so I was glad to see Alabama issue a mask mandate. At least 36 states now have, have issued some sort of requirement for wearing masks. Walmart and Sam's announced today they're going to start requiring customers to wear masks. So, um, those are, those are things, you know, those are risk mitigation measures that'll help. And when you're, um, you know, when you have a, a relatively mild, mild risk, you talk about regression to the mean. Right. But, but what you have to be careful about when you have extreme risk like this, it's a different mindset. You don't regress to the mean, you progress to the extreme, you don't move right. backwards. You potentially go out way out to the extreme. So you've got to avoid to the fat tail. You know, progression to the extremes. Huh? Basically go, you're, you're, you're moving out towards the fat tail, the fat tail. These are, and epidemics have extremely fat tail. So, you know, statisticians talk about, you know, if you think about statistics, if you know a little bit about statistics, you talk about, um, you know, an average or a mean value. And then you talk about the variation around the mean value, which is, you know, measured by the variance or the standard deviation. When talking about extreme risks like this, um, the data would suggest an infinite mean and an infinite standard deviation Wow. Which, well, we got a, yeah, so we've got a bounded population, which is only 7 billion people in the world. So you can't have right. 10 billion deaths. There's only, you know, so right. uh, that's one of the things that Taleb and, and uh, Cirillo in their paper talk about is how to, um, that my calculation is based on a extremely heavy tail phenomenon, but it takes into account the fact that the world is bounded. So, um, and then you kind of, some ways to get around that issue, but, uh, but that's what it kind of, kind of suggests. So really, if you look at just a sample um, and what, what really, what the practical impact to that is that if you just take a, a small sample and you take the average, of that small sample, it's just really meaningless, you know, in terms of telling what the true underlying population means. Sure. So sampling statistics really don't, don't tell you much about the mean or the, the true amount of variation in the data. Well, Cause it, it, it winds up being kind of dominated by, by one or two events. So what's, you know, I, I I have some friends that, you know, wanted to be a little bit more optimistic than the data suggesting. And 
had a cousin of mine say to me that, well, you know, there's only a few, if you take the total number of deaths and compare it to a flu, it's not so bad. And I'm thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm mindful of what one epidemiologist said back in, I think it was in June when we were starting to have some reopenings in various places. He said, he said um, hey, we're only in the second inning of this ball game. And, you know, I think you could point back, I'm looking here at, a, at, at some statistics from the Spanish flu that happened back in 1918 and 1919. And so the first wave, they had, you know, five deaths per 1,000 people. But then the, when the second wave hit, and this was, as I'm reading it here, this is about three or four months later, as you rolled into the the winter month, the fall and winter months in the northern hemisphere, that it went up. It was five times as deadly. There were, we went up from five deaths per thousand to twenty-five deaths per per thousand. Then there was another trough, and then a few months later, as you work your way into the spring and summer, the spring of nineteen eighteen, it, it went back up over ten. So in other words, the first wave was exceeded by 5x by the second wave and by 2x by the third wave. And so one thing that can happen in these epidemics is that the, the virus can mutate. Um, the, the responses are varied. The, the tactics that we take to fight the tactics that the virus have can be, in the best case, they can be really good and we can try to nip this thing in the bud. But what we're seeing now is that we're, we're not nipping it in the bud. We're starting to accelerate it. And so in the, the vernacular of the Spanish flu, we're, we're in a second wave, which if history shows us anything from that, that this second wave could be more deadly than the first. Right. And if you look at the, the uh, Spanish flu epidemic, from about 100 years ago, um, about 0.6% of the U.S. population at that time passed away from the from uh, this uh, disease. Um, it is interesting to note that it was affected young people much more yeah. uh, than it did uh, people that were uh, adult age. A lot of a lot of children died, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, at 0.6% of the current U.S. population, which is estimated to be about 331 million people. That's a, that's a couple of million deaths. So, um, you know, right now the official count is in the hundred and a little bit less than 140,000. So we got, a, we got quite a ways we could go with this. Um, you know, that's, that's a possibility. Um, you know, the, the, you know, New York, which had, uh, you know, based on the number of reported cases, they've had a case fatality reported rate of, 7.6 percent oh boy um you know and i think partly that's because their healthcare system got overwhelmed but but you know that the study that, that the one the one and a half percent is uh, probably a better figure because that is based on new york so the one and a half percent probably takes into account the fact at, at one point the healthcare system in new york was getting overwhelmed so um you know that's one of the things that we need to try to avoid as much as possible it's happened in a few places um already currently happening in Florida and Texas and potentially Arizona. It's a little, a little hard to tell exactly what's going on. The, um, I just read the day that the, the governor of Oklahoma tested positive. Yes, I read that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. 
well, he the, was at the uh, he was at the rally that, that that the president held out there in June. It's probably probably too long a lapse for him to have contracted it there, but um, but he could have um, he could have been exposed to it there. He was at the rally and hardly anyone at the, the rally wore masks. So wow, yeah. I mean the 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 thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is is um, Especially, I mean, I think the president didn't seem to appreciate this is the the idea of an exponential function, A, and then the time series that these that these viruses and these other bugs have for us. So the at the beginning, when when somebody scoffed that you know that there were only a dozen cases out there, I said uh, I said to myself, Hey, you got to pay attention to what's happening in the other countries. They they're on an exponential curve. We have no way to mitigate this. There's nothing for us to believe that, given the fact that we haven't put any precautions in place. Again, this would have been early February, you know, late, you know, mid-February that that time frame. That was the time to really stomp on it, and yes, and we didn't. And you know, New Zealand stomped on it pretty hard, and they don't have a problem right now. So, right. So J- Japan, uh, you know, Japan's had less than a thousand deaths. They never really shut down the economy. They are experiencing a little bit of resurgence now, but, but you know, universally they wear masks. If you see people in, on even in the streets just walking around, you you see people. Almost everyone's wearing masks. So, um, you know, wearing wearing masks can uh, can be the key to mitigating this to point where we can make. Um, you know, go up, kind of go about our everyday business more or less until yeah. we can get a vaccine. You know, all this is enough to, to drive somebody to drink. And so you and I were talking about the, yes. uh, the drinking that's going on during this, this epidemic. So you, you like wine. I like beer. You've been studying wine. I've been studying beer. Um, you have an interesting story to tell about your, your wine selection most recently, I believe. Yeah. So, you know, I, I uh, but staying at home, I um, I have a little bit of a I have a wine refrigerator. You know, holds about thirty bottles. And um, I guess when the outbreak started and the quarantine started, I didn't buy any wine. I was also I had given up wine for Lent, so um, you know, basically I would only I could only drink wine on Sundays during that time. So mm-hmm. I didn't draw down my stock much during that time, but. Um, but then once Lent was over and I started slowly drawing down my stock, it's just me because my wife doesn't drink. So I just have a glass of wine with dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, you know, so I started kind of getting down there and then, you know, started looking at, uh, you know, buying wine online. I, I've, I bought some wines through this outfit called winestillsoldout.com, W-T-S-O.com. And, they it's kind of like the overstock.com for wines online. Mm. Um, you can, they, they have clearance deals on a variety of different wines. And so I, I would just kind of wait and see, I would wait, look, look for something that looks interesting to me and was, I kind of like that sweet spot in the 15 to $20 a bottle range. So mm-hmm. You can get some good, good value wines. And, um, and so if you order four bottles or more of the same wine then you get free shipping. So it's, so it winds up being a pretty good deal overall. Sure. And um, so, uh, one of the the wines I uh, purchased recently was called uh, Calculated Risk. It's the, <laughs> actually the name of the winery is Calculated Risk Winery. I'd never heard of them before. They're in Sonoma, 
in Napa. And if you go on to their website, this particular bottle, it's, which was a, um, a Cabernet from 2018, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, it's um, on the website, it's you know, listed at $49.99. And I got it for less than $20 a bottle wow. on um, wine still sold out. And uh, so I took a little bit of a calculated risk. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty good wine. Um, so, you know, I like, uh, I like Cabernets. It's a little bit on the, um, it's, it's very, pretty good, um, food wine. And I recommend you, you know, you, uh, drink it while you eat food. Um, it's a little bit on the, the red fruit side of the Cabernet spectrum. So a little bit like, you know, a little bit light, sometimes maybe, maybe pork or something would be ideal for that. Um, but the, one of the things I thought was interesting was kind of their mission statement, which is on their, their wine bottles, which is mm-hmm. here's to the crazy ones, the ones who change the world, the painters who recolor it, the scientists who redefine it, the innovators who take it can't be done as their starting point. They make computers and garages. They turn moldy bread into medicine and take the bus seats that were denied to them. They smash barriers because they are convinced that something better exists on the other side. When the pluses outweigh the minuses, they take the calculated risk. And that's a great, that's a great way to think about risk management is, oh, yeah. you know, risk, risk is not, a, you know, risk management is not about just avoiding risk. It's about calculating risks and then making intelligent decisions based on weighing the, the, the uh, risks and the benefits. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other way to look at that from the, the standpoint of say you're in a, in a job that you don't like, uh, could be something to the effect that, you know, the biggest risk you could take is not taking one, especially if you're in a job that's, that you don't like, you've been there for quite some time and you, you may have an idea about something else that you want to do. Um, if you don't take that risk, you, you know, you could go to your grave wondering, should you have taken that risk and how you, how would your life have been different? You know, I, um, you know, from my own standpoint, I, I left a pretty nice job at Lockheed Martin um, nine years ago, Christian, come this. Oh, wow. October. Yeah. And, you know, uh, with the idea of trying to rewrite a whole part of um, how we do market analysis with this multidimensional economics that we have, which, you know, we're getting some traction on. And, um, you know, as you're looking at the wines and trying to get a good value on the wines, I, I I, I was thinking the same thing about beers and, and noting that the thing about a beer is, I mean, the, the, when you get a wine, you get, you, you get a certain size of the wine. I mean, the, the typical size that you get is, I think, uh, was it a liter or 28 ounces? What's the standard? It's a 750 milliliters. So, ah, 750. so three quarters of a liter. Yeah. Three quarters of a liter. Okay. Well, I mean, so you get that, that quantity of wine and, and, when you're buying it in a, what amounts to a four pack, you get a discount. So what, what you're getting there is if you got the price for one bottle and you got the price for four bottles and the, the four bottle price is lower per bottle than the one bottle price. And then you've got a certain number of points. And, and in your experience, Christian, do the, the, do the, the, the wine ratings kind of match up with your assessment of the, of the taste or I think so. I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, I've seen, um, you, know, you, you can get 90 point wines under $20, but they call it 90, you know, 90 points, like almost like an A grade in school. Right. Yeah. 
Right. So right. 90 points, kind of the threshold. If you can get in the eighties, that's really good. You know, it's like a B plus. So you typically you'd want something that they'll, and, and they'll only um, kind of brag about, about it if it's in the, you know, 88, close to 90 and then above. So, and um, you know, and it, it, it depends upon, you know, like they may say it's 92.1. Well, that could be from one individual. Someone else could have given it an 83 or a 75, but, uh, but, you know, so it's kind of a high grade, you know, but yeah, so you can get some pretty good wines for um, under $20. I, I used to go to an event, as you say, used to be in January every year when I lived in Huntsville and it was, um, they would have um, 90 under 20. So which is 90 point wines, 90 point or above rated wines for under $20 a bottle. So, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of good value wines, you know, um, South America has some pretty good value wines, Chile. Right. has really good value wines for the uh, quality. Um, you know, if you, uh, you know, now if you want to go to somewhere like Bordeaux, they can, you can, can you spend a lot of money on wine. So uh, maybe not the best place to get value wine sometime, but you go to the Southwest France, uh, uh, which I like uh, Malbec's from so- Southwest France. I get some good deals on wine still sold out on, on uh, Malbec's from France. You typically associate Malbec with Argentina. Yeah. Right. Go to the grocery, go to the grocery store. You're most likely going to see, um, Argentinian Malbecs, but the Malbec grape started in France mm. and was transported to South America from France. And uh, some of the rootstock probably today in France is from South America. That was one of the areas in France that was devastated by uh, a pest called phylloxera a long time ago. And um, they had to kind of rebuild the rootstock uh, from, uh, from some, some other places uh, from the new world. But uh but yeah, but Malbec grape started in in France. So I didn't know that. That's that's interesting to know. Um, yeah, it's one of the it's one of the five uh, uh, Bordeaux grapes. It's uh, the blending grapes. There's five. You know, France has a lot of rules about wine. Um, you know, for, for example, if you're in the Burgundy region, you can only grow. Typically, you can only grow Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Right. Uh, so if you have a red Burgundy wine, it's going to be uh, a uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, if you're in the Bordeaux region, um, there are five grapes that they allow to be put into a Bordeaux wine. Um, you know, because wines in France are named at the region where the grapes are grown, and it's right. Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, uh, Merlot, uh, Malbec, and Petit Bordeaux. Uh, most Bordeaux wines now are some blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. Uh, you don't see as many with Petit Verdot in there, but um, but um, but but yeah, but Malbec is one of the the grapes that sometimes historically been blended in with with uh, with uh, Bordeaux wines. Well, you know, a lot of people like to pair the the wines with cheese, and I, I remember the time we went to France. We we took a family trip there, and we went to Le Bon Marché, where which was just a three blocks down from the flat that we rented, and if you go into a French equivalent of a supermarket, the the section devoted to cheese in a large market is um, it, it's probably six times the size of, of a complete dairy section, or maybe ten times the size of a complete dairy section you would see in any market in America because they, they have so many cheeses. And I remember one time, I think it was de Gaulle said, well, how can you run a a country that has 300 laws written about cheese, you know, it's, uh, 
which kind of gets back to the whole thing about you know COVID. I mean, how do you how do you solve a problem that's got more variables than you can count right now? That's that's a big deal. Um, you know, from yeah, my so standpoint, looking at beer, I mean, I I've had you know, I, I kind of want to complain. There's, we have a favorite restaurant, and they've got a really nice beer, but they they charge a fortune for it. And so one of the things that I've discovered that is in, in any market, for those of you that are, can visualize this kind of thing, if you look at the quantity of a product sold on the horizontal axis, so imagine a horizontal axis going out, and then the vertical axis being price, there there is a kind of a boundary or two boundaries that form from upper left to lower right. And so if there's two boundaries, the upper one, that would be starting at the absolute top, the highest price one, and kind of moving at a north, west to southeast diagonal. I call that the price limit. And then at a certain point, there is a certain quantity limit that forms, which is to say at a certain point that you've run out of, in, in, in the case of beer, you've run out of beer drinkers, or in the case of a yacht, you've you know, run out of yacht buyers, or the case of socks, you've run out of sock buyers. So there's a certain upper limit with respect to price and the outer limit with respect to quantity. And one of the things I'd like to try to do, and I, I'm, I've been knocking this around, my wife thinks it's a great idea, Christian. Christian and I met at the, at the ICEA conference, at an ICEA conference, we've been going to them for years. But I was thinking of what, how great it would be to make a paper entitled uh, Beer Me, where the me would be multidimensional economics. So in other words, the paper would be the multidimensional economics of beer. Oh, that's a great idea. And what I've, what I've come to realize is like when you talk about, you know, you get your, your bottles, you get either one or four 750 milliliter bottles, but you could buy, if I'm not mistaken, a case of wine is 12 bottles of wine, is it? Yes, that's right. So you could go one, four, 12 with the number of wine bottles that you have. Well, in beer, you know, when you buy at the store, you can buy a, some beers, you can buy a four-pack, you can buy a six-pack, you can buy a 12-pack. You can buy a case, which is 24 bottles, and then you can buy multiple cases at some place like Costco and get a deal. And then if you want to work up the line, you can, you know, you can go to your liquor distributor. You could buy a small keg, what they call a pony keg. And there's two different sizes of that than a standard keg. Now I've discovered if you're a big, if you're a big restaurant, you might actually buy a pallet of kegs. So it's very likely the case that there's a, um, a certain value that, that the beer has for its taste and how much you get of it. And that there, we ought to be able to, you know, work out that response for that beer. So why would you do something like that? Well, it gets back to the, the problem I talked about at the beginning here, which is, you know, I'm sitting at a restaurant drinking, you know, knocking down this beer and I only have usually one cause it's a 23 ounce beer. That's kind of a German sized portion, you know? Um, but it's costing me nine fifty, and I was thinking this guy might be better off if you were to drop the price of beer and sell more. Now I wouldn't buy two, but some other people might. And then I was thinking too, that, you know, so this beer I thought was overpriced. And then we, we have, cause we live in a town that's, here in California, it's inland by about 50 miles. It's a nice town, but it's not not a beachfront town. Beachfront towns, you know, they typically have higher real estate values, and they typically, along with that, they could they could expect to charge more for 
restaurant food and their beer and their wine. So uh, you, I, there's another restaurant that we've gone to on the beach in Carpinteria that's got, you know, sec- effectively the same quality beer for about uh, 60% of the price. And I was thinking, well, this, this beer seems to be underpriced. And so it kind of becomes a, a you know, effectively the Goldilocks question. You know, what is just right for the, in this case, for the price of the beer? And what's just right in the case for you, Christian, what's just right for the price of the wine? You know, there's, there's different answers that you get by looking at things in different ways, you know? Right. And, um, you know, it's not cut and dried all the time. It's, um, it's something you have to, you, you have to dig into the data. And so in this case, the way I would have to dig this data out would be, I say, well, I'd have to get data for coastal towns and inland towns and, Expensive downtown zip codes like, say, Manhattan, and very inexpensive rural dis- you know rural districts like Amarillo, Wisconsin, where I used to live. And if you got all that data, and then you could get the the quality and the price data, you could actually make a model that would suggest what the optimal price of the beer is. And so, why would you do that? Well, if you're selling the stuff, you you know, if you overprice something, you're going to sell less, and there's a chance that you would actually lose, lose revenue, profits, by doing that. And, of course, if you underprice it, the, the same kind of thing happens. You'd raise your price and lose some sales, but you would you would make up for it by, you know, charging what appears to be the correct price based on what the entire world is supporting outside of your bar. So that that's what we're trying to get to here. So... There may be a data set out there. I, I know that uh, I took a machine learning class several years ago through Georgia Tech, and I did one of the data sets I worked with was um, a wine quality data set. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes, and it's available online. It's like a big machine learning repos- repository data sets. It's like thousands of data points. Now, these were, I think these were wines in Spain or Portugal, somewhere like that. So, um, and so you know, I was did some analysis with that. Like, for example, I found that uh, – higher alcohol content was associated with, you know, better wine quality or people like the wine more mm. in terms of the rating. Um, and we're talking about wines that are anywhere from eight to 12%. Uh, outside of a sparkling wine, it's very, very hard pressed to find a wine below 12% mm-hmm. uh, alcohol content here. So, you know, we're talking about something that's a little different than what you would normally see in the States, but um but yeah, so you know, when you get to the twelve percent, tends to taste a lot better than something that's more like the eight percent. Um, alcohol is a sugar; it imparts a little more flavor to some extent. So, what you what you normally see in the states now is uh, I, I saw this uh, one of my last business trips to the D.C. area. There was a series of billboards inside the metro advertising mm-hmm. the metro. One of the things they said was that global warming was causing smaller grapes, and I did some research on that. It looks like actually higher, higher carbon dioxide levels are associated with higher sugar levels in grapes, which oh. winds up resulting in higher alcohol levels. So I've noticed in the last 10 years that alcohol levels in wines have kind of gone up. If you go to look at a California wine, for example, most of them are at the 14% or level or above. The threshold for what's sometimes considered a fortified wine, which is high alcohol content, is 15%. Wow. And you, you can find those. You can find those in California. Um, and um, so you, we are, you know, kind of seeing higher alcohol 
content levels uh, in wine across the board as a result of that. But but that's so that's one of the characteristics. You know, the higher the alcohol content level, the more people like it. It's um, it does make it um, um, more of a sipping. Well, you know, sometimes I call it sipping wine. If you're just going to sit down and drink a glass of wine by itself mm -hmm. right. and not have it with food, a higher alcohol uh, content wine is going to be easier to drink. A lower alcohol content wine is probably going to be more, you know, food friendly. Um, so, but you, you know, there's probably a data set out there for beer, just like there is for wine. You can probably find something out, out like that out there. Well, what, what, as I listen to you carefully here, it seems like what, what the data set would be for wine would be the, you know, the quantity, of course, the, what, how much you buy buying at a time. And then there would be the, the quality rating, which could be, you know, for anywhere I get, what's the lowest quality wine you've seen on the shelf 70 something or I, I don't know i don't know if they advertise ratings like that i don't know i mean i i um well i'm not sure that that yeah i've seen ratings at my uh, costco that i think they start in the 80s and they go into the 90s is that right it's probably something for wine okay yeah and um, and if, if, if you if you got below that you probably are not gonna put it on you know advertise it right okay well, so that's a that's a rating, and then the the alcohol content. Do so they post that too, or do you have to actually figure that out? That's usually on the bottle. I think there's a requirement. It's you almost always see it on the bottle. I think, I think that's okay. required by law. Well, the post alcohol content. Be interesting to see if alcohol content and quality track are so highly correlated you couldn't separate the two, or if you could separate the two, do they both have positive effects that uh, help support the price? That would be interesting. Oh yes, definitely. So yeah, alcohol contents one uh, characteristic, and there's other characteristics in wine. Um, you know, different chemical, different different chemicals that are in the wine. Um, you know, you know the Jules Berta. You know that company um, that's um, not Jules Berta. Um, um, what's the name of that company that they, they used? They're not oh, uh, Gallo. Um, they're you know they're not making these big cheap uh, wines like you buy in these big jugs at the supermarket. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, you know, they, they've done some, uh, com companies like that, you know, that are known for that. They've actually done a lot of, uh, data science and, and data analysis to figure out what makes a good drinking wine. And so some of the best sellers that are in the grocery store are based on the result of them doing that kind of analysis. So, oh, um, and they're, and they're usually in that price point between 10 and $20 a bottle. So, so wines like, uh, Apothic, I think they make, I think Gallo, I think Gallo's the maker of the Apothic a line of uh, wines that make a wide or red. They make a extremely, you know, like a, a really bold red. They make a, a lighter red. And it's all based on their analysis of trying to find, you know, these niche, you know, these niche customers, people that like different kinds of wine and uh, they sell pretty well. And they, and they've entered them in, you know, competitions and, and they've, uh, you know, they've gotten, you know, silver and gold medals. Well, that's excellent. Yeah. I'm looking here at them. They have, they have everything, from the the high the hiring stuff down to uh, <laughs> something that was popular with some of my, me and my some of my friends when we were in high in I, I should say in college Boone's Farm. You know that's a uh, an apple. oh yeah cheap yeah. cheap wine yeah apple, yeah so uh, that is interesting that is something I'd like to be able to study in a little bit more depth sometime is to figure out how to optimize that because. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that could, uh, draw attention. So, um, 
Yeah, no, that would be good. Yeah, and the, you know, it's kind of interesting because you have the um, one of the interesting things about the beer market is, um, by and large, for the most part, you know, if you if you go to the the store and you look at the selection of beer, there's all kinds of beers. You know, there's like there's Australian beers and there's Irish beers and there's you know all kinds of things. They have all kinds of labels, all kinds of names. But unless it's a craft beer that's you know by a micro what they call a microbrewery, right? They um, you're typically buying beer from one or two companies. Yeah. Um, you know, because of the the all the uh, mergers and acquisitions over time, you're either buying, I think, was it Miller Coors or Anheuser Busch? Right. Yep. Those are the two biggies. Yep. And so, but uh, and you know the the craft, uh, I guess you used to call microbreweries. Now I think they're called craft breweries. You know, that's an interesting market because it's um, hyper local. Uh, I uh, I have a small, very small investment in a in a craft brewery in Huntsville, Alabama, called Straight to Ale. A L E, mm-hmm. and um, they, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned in, in uh, talking to the owners about that is um, the, the the market for that is is high, what they call hyper local in the sense that people only want to drink uh, um, that kind of beer from a brewery where that they've actually visited. Mm. So, so they're going to get customers from Alabama, and you know, they're Huntsville, Alabama. They're going to get customers from Southern Tennessee. They might get a few from Mississippi, maybe from Northwest Georgia, but they're not going to get any, get any customers from South Carolina, probably. I mean, you know, no. maybe maybe very few. So, and and to sell beer, uh, you know, if you're at that size market, you you have to basically get permission state by state to sell your beer. So at some point, they just kind of stop trying to expand because they realized that they had become hyper local. So most of their sales were were um, were concentrated, you know, in just a few states. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, around here, we've got lots of craft breweries in the state of California. And, you know, back to the whole element of taste, the, the craft beers are, are typically, to my taste buds, a lot tastier. In fact, I was I was um, pointed to them by a friend of mine. And he says, why do you keep drinking? I, I don't want to say the name. It'll sound like I'm disparaging one of the top brands. But why are you drinking that... Um, very popular beer. He said, you ever tried a you know, craft beer? I go, no. And so he said, well, try some of this. And then he gave me his beer and I go, well, that's quite a bit different, better than the stuff I've been drinking. So I, I switched over instantly. I, I haven't had a mainstream beer in some time for that reason, but um, you know, everybody's taste buds different, but that's because of that added element of taste. I'm willing to pay a little bit more for a craft beer than I am for regular beer and, and, and that that might go back to the to the same thing you were saying about the wine typically the wines that have higher alcohol alcohol contents typically taste better to the average person i think the same is true with the beers the the beer that's got a little bit more alcohol maybe because it's got you know sets into sugar pretty quickly that um that seems to that seems to be a draw for me and a lot of people so so yeah, it's um, it's hard to. There's a lot of variables that are in that that I'd like to be able to ferret out so that we can figure out how to work it out to. So that we can figure out how to help, you know, restaurants and and uh, distributors make more money. That would be my goal from something like that. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, that would be that would be good. And I could uh, maybe I maybe I can take some of your analysis and give it to the 
the company and they can make more money because they haven't they haven't been um every year they, they turn in the loss so <laughs> somehow oh well see they they may not have studied the the value of their beer versus their the demand if they're yep if they're not uh, if they have the capability to make more and they're they're running out of stock they need to go to some local tavern owners and see how their beer is faring against all others and they need to find the the upper and the outer limits of the amount of beer that is that's being sold every day and um you know that that turns out that's going to be hugely important to making those kinds of dis, uh, decisions so um that's something that's you know it's going to take a little bit of uh, a little bit of um research but i mean heck all this kind of all the stuff that kind of work that you and i do does take some research so why not right sure definitely yeah yeah so what are you researching now i mean you've got your first book out what you know uh, you and i'd like we're talking about doing a book down the road but what are you researching for yourself right now for your your next papers and the like what are your what do you uh, you know you know extreme risk you know extreme value theory i've been kind of uh it's kind of one aspect of risk i haven't spent a lot of time with yet so i'm trying to understand that a little bit more so i've been um you know getting up to speed on it on extreme value theory which is basically the me- you know the measuring the risks of extremes which is um pretty popular in the insurance and finance industries because of the extreme risks they see but it also applies to pandemics like, like COVID-19, um, you know, and, and the, the kind of deaths we've been talking about, like 30 million is not intended to be like really expected value. It's really kind of looking at what is the risk exposure, you know? Sure. Yeah. Tens of, tens of millions of people could, could, could potentially die, you know, if we're not more careful, um, you know, doing things like wearing masks is going def- to definitely help cut down with that. If we find a vaccine quickly, that can help, you know, we, but the key thing is when you have these, risks that have these extremely large tails, cutting the tail is, is critical to managing that risk. So that's one of the things I've been looking at. The other is um, I do a lot of data analysis and I've been exploring um, uh, how, to, how to fill in missing, you know, always when you have data, one of the, uh, one of the big, big problems is there's always missing uh, variables. You know, so you might, uh, you might have 50 data points, but, you know, some of the variables you want to measure, some of the, the factors that you want to measure analysis, they're, they're missing for some of the data points. And there's some statistical techniques for uh, filling those in intelligently um, called imputation. And I've been doing some research on uh, on doing that and applying it to some some of the work that I've been doing for the Army. So, yeah, I, uh, I we, we did some de facto computing of data for um, some helicopter analyses that we were doing. Um, most notably, if say, for example, you know the the um, loaded weight of a helicopter, which for the, the uninitiated, the loaded weight of the helicopter would be the, the weight of the helicopter plus the fuel plus any payload to include the people or anything else that you're hauling in it. So suppose you know the loaded weight of the helicopter and you know the speed, you know the number of engines, but what you don't know is the empty weight. And as Christian could tell you, the, the empty weight is a very important variable for many projects, many, many very, a- very different aspects of industry. So shipbuilding, 
car manufacturer and of course the the manufacturer of aircraft. So it, it worked out that if you took the loaded weight of an airplane and the speed, you could work out the empty weight with a pretty high degree of accuracy. So we would come back and fill in empty weights that way to try to make the database more complete. So are you doing things of that nature or are you a little bit slighter, slightly different or how are you going about it? Yeah, it's a little bit like that. It's, uh, there's a couple of different uh, leading techniques for that. One is you can actually build the model with the data points with the miss, you know, with the data points missing, you know, based on the, the distribution of the data using a technique called expectation maximization, but that requires a separate model. You know, for every model type you use, it requires a separate framework. Uh, another technique is called multiple imputation it takes into account some of the uncertainty in the data and yeah. basically it, and does some regression analysis, um, you know, to fill in the missing holes. And it, and it creates, it generates multiple sets. Um, and then you do analysis on the multiple sets and that kind of, you know, tells, takes, you say basically you have multiple equations and then you average the coefficients of the equation. So, so those kinds of things I'm using, uh, the statistical, uh, platform R letter R's and, uh, Ralph, right. um, to, to do that analysis. So, so when you're doing the multiple equations, it's, it's kind of like, is that equivalent to or similar to your, your ensemble method? Or is it? The, yeah, it's similar yeah. to ensembles. Yeah, we've been experimenting with using uh, multiple methods. You know, it turns out, you know, you would think that uh, if you had, uh, turns out that if you have a couple of, um, you know, mediocre models, then, you know, average them makes them much better. And even if you have a, a rock star model and then you average it with a so-so model, the average of those two is actually better than the rock star model. So it's kind of surprising result that they've seen in statistics and, um, but it, it works. So, uh, we've been you know, experimenting with, um, doing multiple models and, and averaging, averaging, averaging them, um, kind of a wisdom of the crowds effect. There's, uh, that, that diversification is important, improves predictive accuracy in, in modeling. So, um, yeah, that, I'm a big, big uh, fan of ensembles which is basically just a fancy word for using multiple models and then taking the average of the forecast. Just like when you look at hurricane forecasts, you never just see one, one uh, hurricane predicted track. You see, you know, a whole spaghetti, you know, a whole bunch of spaghetti lines, you know, going up together and usually kind of the average of those is usually where the hurricane is most likely sure. to go. Sure. And if you're coming up with a single score for something like that, it, it's like sometimes we would do a say going back to empty weight, you might, we might take several equations and you'll get different predict different predictions for each one of them. And, and so what you could do is kind of score it like you score Olympic diving where you throw out the high, throw out the low and take the average of say the remaining four. Right. You use something like that. Right. Yep. 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 That's uh, yeah. And it's just kind of like uh, another way to think about it is, you know, the, the, the Beatles, you know, probably one of the best bands in the history of rock and roll. And as much as good as uh, as much as I like some of the solo music of Paul McCartney and some of the solo music of um, John Lennon and even George Harrison, Ringo Starr, they all kind of pale in comparison to the music that the Beatles produced as an ensemble. That's a good way of thinking of it. I like that. That's that's great. I, th I think we should um, should wrap up with that idea. That's okay. a good yep. way to keep to let, let the audience have something to go home with. Say that one more time for the audience in a different way, Christian, so we can wrap our head around that, please. So, the, the, you know, the idea of multiple models is, you know, you know, if you use multiple models, you're going to be more accurate than if you use a single model. And using multiple models 
is better than using the single best model. It's, it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive to me to some extent. It's taken me, you know, doing some experimenting with it to get some comfort level. Uh, I would, I would think that the single best model would give you the, the best answer and you should go with that. But, but regardless of how good it is, there's typically some advantage to be gained in terms of predictive accuracy and taking a different look at the data, look different model, maybe even a different data set. And by doing that, you get some diversification in the modeling process that uh, improves the, the likelihood your, your forecast will be accurate. Which is just exactly like having all the beetles together than listening to them singly. Right. Yep. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and tune in next time to Smart Remarks, Power States. Thank you and good night. Smart Remarks, Howard States is brought to you by Me Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash me evaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard.